This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, The Varieties of Mystical Experience, recorded February 17, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I think there are two major misconceptions about enlightenment or realization or awakening or gnosis that are current today. The first one is that it's very easy to attain and you don't have to do much practice and you just have to sort of be still and it happens all the time. I read one teacher who said, oh, he's seen 100, 150 people wake up in one afternoon. Uh, I wasn't there, but uh, anyway, that misconception I addressed in a talk last December called To Practice or Not to Practice, which is in the library if any of you want to check it out. But then there's a, another misconception uh, and that is that enlightenment or realization passes. It's not uh, permanent. And I mentioned earlier this book by Jack Kornfeld called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And he begins by saying, Enlightenment does exist. It is possible to awaken unbounded freedom and joy, oneness with the divine, awakening into a state of timeless grace, these experiences are more common than you know, and not far away. There was one further truth, however. They do not last. Our realizations and awakenings show us the reality of the world, and they bring us transformation, but they pass. Normally, I don't uh, talk about other teachers by name, and I'm making an exception this morning because this book is such a classic example of this misconception, and also because I actually have a lot of respect for Jack Kornfeld. We have a lot of uh, videos of his, we have other books of his, and I recommend him. Uh, I think he has a lot of very valuable things to say on a path. Uh, so I'm not dinging Jack Kornfeld per se. But his point here, because he starts with this premise, the point of his book is that after awakening, after realization, then we have to do all this work integrating this into our ordinary lives. And I think this is a not only a misconception philosophically, but it can mislead people who have uh, what uh, later I'm going to call Gnostic flashes and so forth into a different kind of practice that would not be as valuable as practices that are traditionally recommended. So that's why I'm bringing this up. Uh, and that's why I mention him particularly by name. So. Uh, this confusion or misconception results partly from a lack of precision of terms, particularly in our culture where uh, we are getting all this influence from so many different traditions and terms are thrown about loosely. So awakening can mean many things. Even realization can mean many things. Uh, but it also, I think, comes about more profoundly from a confusion about the kinds of experiences to be had on a mystical path I want to emphasize that. There are all sorts of other, quote, spiritual experiences, but on a mystical path and their significance. So this morning, uh, I thought we'd uh, try to classify some of the major experiences into a kind of uh, uh, type hierarchy, starting uh, with the uh, lowest, lowest meaning least important and usually earliest on the path, things that happen to people earlier, and then uh, how it progresses and Experience, deeper experiences that people have. So this chart here is uh, that typology, that's what that is, starting from one being the lowest and seven uh, being the highest here. Now let me say that this is not exhaustive. There are lots of different kinds of experiences people have and uh, they don't always happen in this order and not everybody has all these experiences. So it's just a kind of model, some way to bring some clarity to, uh, to their discussion here. So let's begin. The first and lowest type are unusual sensory phenomena, which usually manifest in the earlier beginning stages of a meditative practice or practice of prayer in the heart or something like that. And what I'm talking about are uh, hearing sounds or seeing colors flashing in your mind or maybe even seeing them uh, outwardly. Uh, most startling perhaps are kriyas as they're called in Sanskrit. They're involuntary jerky movements. If you come here enough occasion, you'll see people sitting here in our meditation having kriyas. Uh, even though it's a Sanskrit term, so known in all traditions, 
uh, Christian friends are called Quakers. And the reason they're called Quakers is at least in the early days, they'd go in these barns and they'd sit very quietly and they'd go in these deep states of meditation and they'd start quaking. And that's mm -hmm. why they're called Quakers. They were having Kriyas. So uh, many seekers get um, quite fascinated when this begins to happen. Oh, these colors, these sounds, oh, this meditation is working. And in fact, they can get quite distracted and they can start practicing in order to have these colors or sounds or kriyas or whatever manifest. But in all traditions, they warn against that. This is just a phenomena rising. Don't get distracted by it. Don't get fascinated by it. The Tibetan Buddhists have a nice analogy for this. And they say it's like a kettle that you put on to boil. And apparently, particularly in these big Tibetan kettles, uh, you put it on the fire and it starts making all this sputtering noise at first, a lot of noise. And they call that a false boil. It's not really boiling yet. And if you let it alone, that dies down and then the true deep boil happens. So if you start getting fascinated by all these colors and stuff like that, you're never going to get to that true deep boil. The second type of experiences people are likely to have are paranormal phenomena. In the East, they call cities, and that covers everything. Miracles, walking on water, levitation, telepathy, clairvoyance, prophetic dreams, all that stuff. Now, this morning, whether these powers are objectively real in a modern scientific sense or not is beside the point. I personally have never seen anybody levitate. Uh, I've never even heard a first-hand account of levitation, uh, except I must make an exception to that. Who are the, um, oh, the people with the university in the Midwestern place? Yes, yes, they had this thing, they levitated, they showed videos of it on television, and they're hopping around the floor. It wasn't my idea of levitation. Anyway, uh, but, but, you know, and this is the world of quantum mechanics, and we don't know what could happen. Uh, so I'm open, but uh, skeptical. I think it's very healthy to be skeptical about those things. I do think it's interesting. I've had experiences in meditation where it feels like you're levitating because the body gets so light and so forth. So maybe there's a, uh, a loss in that translation there, what levitation really is. In any case, people do experience these things. And I, I personally can vouch for things like telepathy and prophetic dreams. So some of it, at least from my point of view, is very real. Again, though, uh, these can be very fascinating, and uh, a lot of people uh, think, oh, this is the point of spiritual practice. But in all these traditions, they strongly warn, the mystics of the traditions strongly warn that uh, you should not become fascinated with this, and you should not make it a goal of the practice. Here's what a great Hindu saint from the last century, Ananda Mayamai, says. Supernormal powers are but a stage. They may be beneficial, they also may also be harmful, but through them you will not attain to the supreme, the ultimate. Paranormal phenomena do not indicate that somebody is a Gnostic or even particularly advanced. And in fact, uh, there's a little Zen story that illustrates this. Uh, a, a Zen monk was walking along and a magician had come to the village, and he was performing all sorts of tricks, you know, the rope trick. He was throwing ropes up in the air and climbing them and so forth. And he was up on his rope, and he saw the little Zen monk go by, and he said, look what I can do. And all the townspeople had turned out to see him. They were very impressed. He says, uh, what miracles do you perform? And the Zen uh, monk says, oh, when I'm hungry, I eat, and when I'm tired, I sleep. That's my miracle. So it's a, a very good story to... Uh, to show you that none of this has really anything to do with awakening. And it's certainly not an indication that someone is awakened. And in fact, it can just as easily feed the ego. And if you start practicing in order to attain paranormal powers because you think it's going to make you stronger and so forth, then it's actually a detriment to the path. And St. Augustine warned about that. Those who search for God by means of the spiritual powers fall far away from him separated not by space, but by opposing affections. It is the admiration that human weakness feels for the works of power which attracts them, rather than the model of reverent surrender which attains the peace of God. They prefer the pride of angelic power to the devotion of angelic being. And I think that's uh, very to the point. Uh, because one of the great virtues of a, of a mystical path is humility. And uh, if you are using these powers and practicing for these powers and using 
them for yourself particularly, they will become a huge obstacle. If these things do happen to you, no, no reason to be afraid, but use them in the service of love and compassion. And don't use them to build the ego. Then the third one is divine or inner guidance, sometimes it's called, which comes in dreams or visions or promptings of grace, as the Christians sometimes call it, the still small voice in the soul, uh, the, the wisdom of the heart. There are all sorts of terms for this. But the key about it is it comes from beyond the egoic mind. It's not something that you think up. And so it has that feeling of coming from uh, outside, not necessarily outside physically, but outside your sense of who you are. And that's why it's, it's divine. It's coming from some other source. Ramana Maharshi describes how this works and how this develops. First, the man prays to God to fulfill his desires. Then a time comes when he does not pray for the fulfillment of a desire, but for God himself. So God appears to him in some form or other, human or non-human, to guide him as a guru in answer to his prayers. So this is very interesting. It comes at the point where you're no longer praying for a Cadillac or you know this or that. You're starting to get the idea that spirituality is really about something much greater, and you're starting to open yourself to be guided. And so then these dreams or visions and so forth will happen. Uh, here's the Tibetan uh, master, Sukne Rinpoche, and he's describing a deity in the Tibetan tradition called Manjushri, and uh, how Manjushri appears. Manjushri is the embodiment of knowledge and wisdom. Sometimes it is possible that Manjushri will literally show his face before you by appearing and giving answers to your questions. At another time, you might just be remaining in equanimity, and an answer to your question arises from within yourself. That could also be said to be the blessings or inspiration of Manjushri. And you'll find this kind of thing happening in all traditions, going back to Native Americans who went on vision quests and learned from animals who appeared to them in visions and dreams. And if you're a Christian, it might be Jesus who's appearing. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila talks about how the image of Jesus appeared to her and spoke to her. Uh, Kadir is a uh, sort of um, subtle form teacher in the Sufi Islamic tradition. Kadir is the green man, and he will appear to Sufis in dreams and so forth and give guidance. Uh, in uh, the Jewish tradition, the angel Metatron is the one who comes and guides. There's a, a marvelous description by Rabbi Isaac of Acre of how he had this dream where the angel Metatron, the prince of the faith, came and, and taught him things in his dreams. So this is a very a common uh, kind of uh, experience, although, again, it can be rather startling, especially when it happens in this rather uh, strong visionary form. But it can also be this, this subtler kind of prompting. And here's how the Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing, a great classic of Christian mysticism, describes the workings of what he calls spiritual love. Then that same spiritual love, which you feel, will tell you when you should speak and when you should be still, and it shall guide you discreetly in all your activities without any error and teach you mystically how you should begin and cease in all such doings of nature with a great and sovereign discretion. So again, this is uh, not so much a specific dream or vision, but that still small voice. And when this begins to happen, the problem for most seekers is actually they have to learn to trust this because it's not something that, uh, you know, the, the egoic mind is thinking up. And if it does happen, it's a great blessing on a path, but you do have to be careful not to be confused about what are the products of your own personal imagination and true inner or spiritual guidance. And I've met people today uh, who seem to me to be a little confused. They have spirit guides that tell them things like, you've worked so hard this year, you should go out and buy a Ferrari. And, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the thing that characterizes this inner guidance, it's what Jung called, and I think a good way to think of them today, they're archetypes of the collective unconscious. And in that sense, they have an autonomy and they're not there to tell you what you want to do. They're tell you, there to tell you what you need to do. And there's often a big difference. And sometimes they're contradictory. 
Your ego mind can tell you what you want to do. You don't need a spirit guide to tell you to go buy a Ferrari. If you want to go buy a Ferrari, buy a Ferrari. I, but, but don't rationalize it by a spirit guide telling you to. So you have to just be careful in that sense. But the inner guidance now starts to be unlike the unusual sensory phenomena or paranormal uh, phenomena. This starts to be uh, significant spiritual experiences that we have and experiences that can be very important on a spiritual path. Uh, it is not, however, the end of the path. It is not gnosis. And in fact, more often than not, uh, having some sort of vision or dream like this will constitute your initiation into a mystical path. It'll really be the beginning of your path. And I'm a prime example of that. The formal part of my path began with a dream of Athena appearing to me, who then provided just this kind of uh, guidance that the cloud of unknowing author is describing throughout my path. So uh, if this happens to you, it's not a, a time to rest on your laurels. Now is when the real work begins, and this guidance will guide you if you let it, if you learn to trust it. That's not always easy. I didn't find it easy. Then we come to uh, insights. Now let me say number four and number five types of experience, insight and contemplative states. They go together. I, I went back and forth which to put first here because they really feed each other. But uh, I put insights first because I think contemplative states, in a certain sense, can be more deceptive. But they really probably should be uh, interwoven. This, this is a tangled hierarchy, a true tangled hierarchy there. Um, and insights can be of two kinds, generally speaking. Uh, one we can call conceptual or noetic insights. And the other are non-conceptual, direct, or experiential insight. And there's a difference between them. Noetic insights bring you more than mere intellectual understanding of something. But they still come through the vehicle of thought. In other words, the, the thinking mind uh, recognizes something that then carries an added value that isn't just, uh, oh, I understand that. It's like, oh. I understand it now. And that can be very important on a spiritual path. My own teacher, Dr. Franklin Merrill Wolf, described three powerful noetic realizations, and he called them that, he had before full enlightenment. And the last one, I'm going to describe this a little bit to you to, to, so you can see how it works. The last one, and the most powerful was, he realized this little aphorism. Substantiality is inversely proportional to ponderability. Don't worry, there won't be a test. I'm not even going to try to explain really what that means. He was a Janana yogi, and so his mind was a very philosophical. But this sounds like a maybe even gobbledygook, but to him this was extremely important because it showed him an error in meditation he'd been making all along. Because he had been looking in his meditation for enlightenment, thinking it was some subtle form of experience, some phenomenon, very subtle, very divine and uh, elevated and all that, but nevertheless something out there. And he realized, oh no, it's not. It is, has to do with the subject who is witnessing all this. The subject which appears to be nothing. I mean, there's not anything there if you go look. So then... He turned his attention around, instead of looking for something, he started looking for no thing, for nothing. And that, as he said, was the key that, uh, that finally opened the door for him. So these uh, uh, noetic insights can be extremely important. Usually, uh, for most people who don't have that kind of philosophical mind, it, it's like understanding a text the first time. And, and uh, you've maybe read it several times, but now you really start to get it. Oh, right. Yeah, I, I've read that three or four times before. but. Now I'm getting it. Very important. But the uh, second kind is the direct uh, or experiential insight. And this is really what we're looking for that is not part of most people's normal experience. It is an insight that bypasses the thought process. It's a direct uh, experience into the nature of reality, or I should say some aspect of the nature of reality. Uh, here's how the uh, author of The Cloud of Unknowing describes it. The skilled contemplative, then, does not depend on discursive reasoning in the same way as beginners and those a little advanced in, contemplative, uh, in contemplation must do. 
His insights arise spontaneously without the help of the intellectual process as direct intuitions of truth. So you may be sitting there meditating and boom, you just see something. It's not like you've thought it out or figured it out. And to give you an example of what we're talking about here, I'm going to mention three major kinds of direct insight you can have on a spiritual path. The first is a direct insight into the moment-to-moment impermanence of phenomena. And if you get into mystical, uh, any mystical tradition, you'll see one of the first teachings that the mystics keep coming back to is that everything is impermanent, everything is transitory, everything in this world passes away. And therefore, if you're looking for happiness in this world, you're never going to find ultimate happiness because whatever brings you happiness is going to pass away. And we all intellectually uh, can sort of recognize that. Even today, the uh, scientists tell us stars are impermanent. You know, in ancient times, they thought they were eternal, but they, uh, you know, explode, become supernovas, collapse into black holes and whatever. But this is only the surface of what mystics are talking about. And if you examine your experience moment to moment, you see that all the phenomena of your experience are constantly rising and passing away. All your thoughts, your sensations, the sounds, the sights, everything is rising and dissolving right under your feet. And to actually come to experience that is to experience the world as not so solid, not being made up of solid objects. It's very fluid. There's no place to stand. <clears throat> and this kind of insight, when we actually see that, is very important because that is what leads us to start to let go of our hold of things. We directly realize and experience we can't grab on to anything. And that's the beginning of a true detachment, which has nothing to do with being unemotional. It just means letting go. The second kind of insight, a little bit more profound, is, and I'm going to use a Buddhist term here, the emptiness of objects. And it's related to the impermanence of things that objects don't have some sort of substantial existence. They don't exist apart from each other, as the Buddhists would say. Everything's conditioned by everything else. So a table isn't just something stuck out there in space. The table depends on the space. It depends on all the conditions of this room. Everything is interdependent. And when we get a direct insight into this, it usually produces what sometimes is called a unity experience the sense of oneness with everything, the oneness of the whole world. People can have this, by the way, or aren't on a spiritual path. You know, you can be walking in nature, and the beauty, beauty is the sign of the unity of everything. The beauty of everything strikes you. And you just have this immediate sense, oh my gosh, everything is really all one. So this is, again, it's not just an intellectual understanding. You're seeing it. You're experiencing it. There it is. And then a third, and even more profound, is a direct insight into the emptiness or non-existence of the self. And especially if you've been doing a lot of meditative practice, and especially if you've been doing a kind of practice that the uh, Buddhists call vipassana, which means insight, where you're examining this moment-to-moment qualities of your experience, you begin to realize, wait a minute, Everything's permanent. My thoughts are impermanent. My sensations are impermanent. My feelings are impermanent. Desires, emotions. Maybe there's no solid self in here. That often produces fear. A, a unity experience often produces joy, uh, but that often produces fear. That's not a bad thing, though. And then a lot of people, uh, are, you know, don't want to look anymore. And then uh, what all the tradition says, no, keep going back because on the other side of that fear. That's a clue. You're really getting close now. You're really on the scent. But all these kinds of insights, and that's just three of the major ones, none of them are gnosis. None of them are enlightenment. They're all uh, insights into partial aspects of the truth, not the whole truth all at once. And that's very important because they still are impermanent, they pass, they are experiences. We can talk about an experience of insight. The insight then may, uh, may permanently transform how you're experiencing the world. In that sense, it's like a shift in perspective. But the insight itself, that unity experience will pass. The, the fear of beholding no self will pass. So this uh, brings us to the next one, and that is contemplative states. And as I said, insights usually occur in contemplative states. Contemplative states can produce insights, so they they work hand in hand together. 
But we're talking about things that happen usually in the more middle and advanced stages of the path. And the two primary uh, characteristics or qualities of states that are attained in meditation or prayer are clarity and bliss. And clarity and bliss vary in intensity, in proportion, in length of time. So you can have just a little bit of clarity, a little bit of bliss. So you can have intense clarity and intense bliss, and they might last for just a few minutes, or they might last throughout a whole day, or uh, a week, or longer. And these uh, states that happen are very important because the bliss that you experience in a meditation practice encourages you to go deeper into the practice. So suddenly you've been struggling with this practice for months or maybe years, and ooh, there's suddenly this wave of bliss arises. And now you want to practice instead of having to drive yourself every morning to sit there and, you know. But also, more importantly, the, the bliss aids the development of concentration. The bliss wipes out lots of distractions. So the bliss uh, keeps you concentrating more. More you concentrate, the more clarity you develop, and the more clarity you have, the deeper the insights you'll have. And it's a very simple reason why, the less distracted you are by your thoughts and all your scattered you know, concerns, uh, the more the world just opens up for you, because the truth of the world is the truth, right here and now, all the time. It's just that we don't see it, we're distracted. So to have a concentrated, clear mind doesn't guarantee a lot of insight, but it creates the opportunity for insight. But, but, and this is where it gets deceptive, states are not gnosis, because states are experiences, they are phenomena, they pass. No state will last forever. This is one of our problems, by the way, in, uh, that causes a lot of suffering, you know. We have states of happiness, just normally, I'm just normal people, uh, and we feel good, and we have nice emotions, and we want to hang on to them. We can't. They're bound to pass. And then we feel bad. And then we long for the time we feel good. And so we're on this roller coaster, the, the wheel of samsara, as the Buddhists call it. But this is true even of spiritual states. They all pass. And this is why uh, people, though, really start to get confused here, especially if they have a state and then an insight, an insight into a unity of all things, for instance, in a deep state, a state that lasts for a while, that's full of bliss, oh, this must be realization, I must be enlightened. And here's what uh, the Tibetan master, great Tibetan master, Wong Champa writes, Upon the mere arising of experiences of bliss, clarity, and no thought, less learned people boast about them as high stages of attainment, and become inflated with pride. So be careful with that. And in the, particularly in the more devotional traditions, like in the Christian tradition, they say, you know, when these states come, treat them with gratitude, but don't cling to them. They come from God. Don't own them. So if they come, that's wonderful. But they are divine gifts. They themselves are graces. Don't become attached to them. Let them pass. And I must say, frankly here, uh, a, a lot of accounts I read of modern awakenings sound to me like intense states of bliss or clarity coupled with perhaps some profound insight. But in the traditional meaning of the term of awakening or enlightenment or gnosis, they are not, as Wang Chepa says. They are states of bliss and clarity and they pass. The highest state attainable uh, is a state of total absorption, or in Sanskrit it's called nirvokapa samadhi. And this is a state akin to dreamless sleep, where nothing is arising. In dreamless sleep, there are no dreams, there are no thoughts, there are no images, there's no nothing. Ain't nothing there. The only difference is in samadhi, or total absorption, absorption is a, is a Christian term, by the way, it's not just known in India, there's lucidity. In a normal dreamless sleep, we go into the deepest, highest samadhi every night, but we're not lucid. So this is very important because if you're not lucid, then there can be no insight in the state. But if there's lucidity, there can be insight. There can be profound insight, as we'll see in a, a minute here. Now, in, particularly in the Hindu tradition, and if you uh, are around people who are uh, deeply associated with Hindu tradition, there's a misconception that samadhi is equivalent to enlightenment. 
And so people practice to go into samadhi and then they come out of it and then they practice again and the idea is that someday they're going to enter samadhi and like disappear. And that's, that is what enlightenment is. You enter samadhi and you're gone. You never come back out. The samadhi never disappears. But samadhi is always impermanent. That's why people keep coming out of it. Samadhi is a very high state, but it is not the ultimate state. Patanjali's wrote the classic work of this kind of approach. Uh, it's the Yoga Sutras. And uh, he begins by saying, Yoga is the restriction of the fluctuations of the mind. Practice is the effort to gain stability in restricting fluctuations. Then consciousness abides in its own form. So the idea in this higher state of samadhi, there's nothing but pure consciousness that abides in itself. This is what's uh, led people to believe this is, okay, that's it. That's all there is. Now, again, the value of this state, if you are lucid, really lucid, is there are no distractions in this state. So there's the opportunity to actually have a very clear realization of the ground of all it is. But the state itself will pass. And this is why, uh, again, Longchenpa says, if one does not distinguish between experiences and realization, he will be deluded by holding on to the experience as realization. The Buddha himself called the highest form of samadhi the peak of cyclic existence. But it's not out of cyclic existence. And even Patanjali himself wrote at the very end, the yogi who is not attached even to the most elevated states attains through gnosis the Dharma cloud samadhi. And the Dharma cloud samadhi is a, is a mysterious term here, but it, it has the sense of the always pouring virtue. So it's a continuing thing. It doesn't depend on any particular state. From this, the cause of afflicted action ceases. So this is uh, enlightenment, the, the end of suffering. Not the state. If we're attached to the state, you're going to miss it because you'll be focused on the state. So, if enlightenment ain't any of these things, it isn't just insights, it isn't states, even the highest states and so forth, what is it? Big question. Now, there are two other things I've got here. The first is Gnostic flashes and episodes. But first, let me give you a definition of enlightenment. Not a, not a final definition. You can't actually define enlightenment. A serviceable definition. It is the direct realization that there is no self and there is no world and everything is God, Brahman, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it, consciousness itself. So these insights we talked about, if you have an insight into the emptiness of self or the emptiness of the world, that's partial aspect of it. but a complete insight and there just are no distinctions between any of these things those distinctions are all unreal boom and you see the nature of that reality which we call here consciousness itself uh, that is the reality that's enlightenment here's what uh zen master huang po had to say about that only come to know the nature of your own mind, in which there is no self and no other, and you will in fact be a Buddha. That's not, you don't have to have paranormal powers, you don't have to be in any high samadhi states, none of that. Just come to know the nature of your own mind, no self, no other, and you're a Buddha. Here's the Sufi, Ibn Arabi. He sees only God as being that which he sees, perceiving the seer to be the same as the seen. No difference between subject and object. And everything you see is God. You don't see a world and then God's up here. A different way of putting it, the exact same thing. Uh, Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart, all things become for him nothing but God. He also said, some people, you know, they think they're going to see God... Uh, face to face out there that's not true god and i we are one here's alali shwari a hindu mystic when i saw him within i saw that he is everything and i am nothing O lali all your life you were deluded only supreme shiva is everywhere 
Uh, that's different traditions, different parts of the world. <clears throat> same thing. Same thing. So this is not just a, a Buddhist view of it or a Hindu view of it. They use different terms to express it. But the idea is here there is nothing but God. There is no self. There is no world. There is no other. No subject, no object. No I, no anything else. So that is gnosis. So why do I make a distinction here between Gnostic flashes and episodes and full gnosis? What is the difference between them? So uh, let's try to talk about this. Now I must say I did another talk, I think it was last year at Enlightenment Day called, I think it was Anatomy of Enlightenment. If you want a more detailed version, you might want to check that tape out too. So uh, we don't have time because I wanted to get, cover all the states here, but it's important to at least say something about this difference. Both Gnosis, a full Gnosis, or a Gnostic flash, begin the same way. And they always happen, first of all, in a state. doesn't have to be a profound samadhi state. It can be just be a moment, a flash, but in some state in which no thought, no desire, no aversion is arising. It's like a discontinuity. And, and for just a moment, all that distraction that takes the attention off the truth is gone. The Kabbalists say, between every transformation of every phenomena, the abyss of reality opens up. So actually, we have a chance to see this every moment. But it's so brief, that's why we practice to have big states like Nirvakampa Samadhi. They last a long time. But it's not a question of a state in the sense of a deep state. It's a question of this moment of nothingness in which the reality opens up. In that moment, whether it's a Blip moment, like the Zen masters, you know, who get enlightened when uh, somebody blows out the candle. Boom, the phenomenon's gone. For a moment, there's nothing. Ah, the truth is seen. Or whether it's in a state of deep samadhi, you've practiced 20 years in the Himalayan cave to achieve. It doesn't really matter. In that moment, attention has no distractions, and it goes back to its source, in and as pure consciousness. As my teacher, Dr. Wolf, called it, consciousness without an object and without a subject. And in this case, literally, literally, there is nothing in this, like dreamlessly. The other quality or characteristic about this is that it is recognized as being timeless. So this is not an experience. It's timeless because time itself arises in consciousness and passes away in consciousness, not the other way around. So to apprehend consciousness without any distinctions is to apprehend what is eternal. Now, this is going to be important in a moment. Here's uh, how Huang Po describes it. If there never has been a single thing, past, present, and future are meaningless. So those who seek the way must enter it with the suddenness of a knife thrust. You see, you can't get the timelessness from time through time. You can't gradually dawn on you. You're moving through time. This is why all descriptions of true gnosis, they're sudden. It's just sudden. It's like a quantum leap, and I'm not trying to make any theory out of this, but, you know, in quantum mechanics, an electron goes from one uh, orbit to another, and it doesn't pass through time and space. It just, it's there. So now, there we are, there's a moment, and, and you're not there, by the way. See, that's the quality. There's no self, no other. So we, we're running out of uh, uh, ways to talk about it that, that are meaningful, but... You know, uh, this is what I get paid to do, talk here. I mean, <laughs> so I got to keep talking. Uh, but we could say that in that state, there is the recognition, the realization, ah, all right, this is the ground of everything, and it is timeless. That, that no words are coming or thoughts like that, per se. But that is a way to communicate it if we have to step down and use words. Now, what happens? Uh, when the phenomena return... There also has to be a recognition, this phenomena too is this consciousness. It's not different from it. It is inseparable from it. This phenomena too is God. This phenomena too is shenyata, empty. Now, people can sort of have that recognition, especially if the phenomena of self does not arise for a while. And so you could, uh, you could come out of, a, a, let's say, a... a a, a formal samadhi, and here's the world, and everything is divine. It's wonderful. And your attention is so absorbed that it's, it's so blissful. No desires arising in you, no anger, none of the negative bad things. 
And you're going along maybe days, weeks, months, even years. Then, uh-oh, one day, a little stirring. That's sexual desire. Oh, my God. Oh, a little annoyance, anger. Oh, that's anger. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm losing my enlightenment. Uh-oh. You're not recognizing that, too, is divine. That, too, is made of this fundamental nature. It's the conditioning uh, of the self, particularly, that when it returns, it makes us then re-identify with that as a self, apart from a world, and then the whole conditioning starts to roll again. And then that gnosis that was timeless, which might have been just a flash, or it might have turned into an episode if it goes on for you know days or weeks or longer, that gnosis then uh, it becomes bracketed by experience on both sides. Your experiences before, and now you're having experiences again. So it seems to be an experience among other experiences. It wasn't an experience. But now, in retrospect, your memory of it places it within the stream of experience. There is a uh, wonderful, very precise description of this given by Augustine, St. Augustine, who had a very powerful Gnostic flash. And I just want to read it to you here because it's so clear from what he says. He goes on for about three pages, by the way. I've condensed this into two paragraphs. I entered into the innermost part of myself, and I saw with my soul's eye an unchangeable light shining above the eye of my soul and above the mind. Now, what he's describing here is like a, a, a yoga practice from the Yoga Sutras, although he was following a contemplative practice from Plato, literally turning inward, going deeper and deeper inward, so you're not distracted by all phenomena outside, going within himself, entering deeper and deeper, and then he sees this unchangeable light. And I, didn't, I don't have time to read the whole thing. He's, this is not a physical light. He makes a big point of it. It's not a physical light. He's just using it as a metaphor. And it's shining above his mind. That is above the thinking mind. And then, and then, in the flash of a trembling glance, my mind arrived at that which is. Oh, sudden, just like Wang Po said, like a knife thrust in the flash of a trembling glance. And he doesn't even want to call it God here. That which is. I mean, there are no words for it. And then he says, um, he that knows the truth knows what that light is. And he that knows it knows eternity. So again, the other timeless, eternal, beyond time, beyond all this. You see, it's the same words that all the uh, mystics use. So, so far, so good. This is a genuine Gnostic awakening, realization, and whatever. But then, he says, But I had not the power to keep my eyes steadily fixed. In my weakness, I felt myself falling back and returning again to my habitual ways, carrying nothing with me except a loving memory of it and a longing for something which may be described as a kind of food of which I had perceived the fragrance but which I was not yet able to eat. He's falling back into his habitual ways, his self-centered conditioning, we would say here. Uh, the Buddhists would say his habit energy. And he's not recognizing that this too is divine. And so it becomes a memory, an experience, placed there. So, this is, I think, if you read through Kornfeld, and I read a lot of modern descriptions of awakening, I think this is what's happening. Kornfeld quotes a lot of teachers. They describe their waking. It sounds genuine. It sounds completely uh, authentic. And then they talk about how afterwards they got depressed, they had problems with their family, and they went back to therapy. Now, <laughs> that's okay. I'm not, you know, it's, there's no blame here or anything, and these things happen. I mean, ultimately, it's all a matter of grace anyway. It's not a question of blame. But I think this is what's important. Uh, this is why I'm really bringing up this talk. If you have a Gnostic flash, a Gnostic episode, there are practices to do very pointedly to get you to keep looking back at the phenomena that are arising, particularly the phenomena of what the Buddhists call afflicted emotions, when anger arises, when desire arises, and so forth. To look at them directly and see that they too are divine. Not to go integrate your ex experience back into your normal life. If you do that, you're you're going down the wrong trail. Now is the time when the iron's hot to strike. 
to keep going. This is what the Dzogchen, the great uh, practice in Tibetan Buddhism, is really all about. It's taught all over the place here uh, as almost like a beginning practice. It's really designed for after someone has had a Gnostic flash and introduced to the nature of the mind. Because it's hard to even understand what they're talking about unless you've had that. But then it's extremely powerful. It keeps pointing you right back again and again to uh, all the things that you think are afflicted. This is, is also known in other traditions. There's a story about the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the modern Hasidic movement, the Jewish movement. And in those days, uh, you, you were supposed to say a prayer, particularly Shema, uh, the, the, the great prayer of Judaism, and you were supposed to say it without any distraction. The person who was leading the prayer, if their mind was distracted by the slightest thought, then the prayer was no good. That was the idea. And the Baal Shem Tov came along and said, well, if everything comes from God, what about the distraction? Isn't that from God too? This is this highest level recognition. Absolutely everything is nothing but God. And I just have to add here, when you see that, it's not that the emotions of anger or desire or whatever change, that they don't arise or anything. It's that they're seen in a completely different light. They're seen, as the Buddha says, as wisdom energies or as the Kabbalists would say, as fallen sparks. They get liberated and return to the divine. So the energy is still there. It's just no longer labeled and felt and experienced as negative and something undesirable. And it's no longer used for self-centered purposes. So this is really why it's important to distinguish uh, a Gnostic flash or a Gnostic episode to recognize its genuineness, its authenticity. But then what do you do with it is the next question. I think that's where Kornfeld has been misleading. Or, or can be misleading. A lot of the advice he gives in the book, by the way, is very good advice, I mean, for a spiritual path, but I wouldn't give it at this point to someone. Now, let's go then finally here to full enlightenment. The question is then, well, is this really possible? And Kornfeld does not believe it's possible. He, at the uh, later part of the book, he gives two models for enlightenment, and he says this is an ideal, that you practice, practice, and finally there's full enlightenment, and that's the end of the path. But he thinks that's sort of an ideal, and he thinks it's misleading, and really the path is all the way. You get a little enlightenment, then you go back, and get a little more enlightenment, and you know, this and that. So let's listen to some of the mystics. Here's Huang Po again. Only awake to the one mind, and there's nothing whatsoever to be attained. Nothing more. Here's uh, Ramana Maharshi. Having realized the self, nothing remains to be known. Because it is perfect bliss, it is the all. Here's uh, Meister Eckhart, Christian mystic. When the kingdom appears to the soul and is recognized, there is no further need for preaching or instruction. It has learned enough and has at once secured eternal life. That's my experience as well, by the way. There is an end to the path. There is an end to searching. There is an end to thinking there's more to find. There's not an end to activity. I mean, all of you know me well. There's all sorts of activities going on here. They just aren't happening to me. I do practices. I do practices because I uh, run across practice I've never practiced before. I think, oh, let's see if this is valuable. I do the practice really for your benefit. I think, oh, yeah, I see what this is. Now I can recommend it because I try never to recommend the practice that I haven't actually practiced. But even in that description, you see, I'm not practicing, and I'm not deciding to do these practices. That's just a, con a concession to our language. Well, I mean, if I, would, if I didn't use the word I, you know, in English, I'd sound very awkward. The impulse arose to practice. While a book was being read, it would all have to be put in a passive or something, and it still wouldn't, you know. <laughs> Somebody uh, occasionally says, why don't you write another uh, spiritual autobiography? Follow mine ended with gnosis. What happened since? And nothing happened. <laughs> I don't know to write about. I really don't. I mean, nothing happened to me. Hold off one second. We'll have to, almost to the end here, and then we'll get into it. Okay. Um, it's not that you got rid of the self. You realized there was no self ever anywhere to begin with. Who would be doing all this integrating of your insight back into normal life? Here's, uh, here's what Ramana Maharshi says. If one inquires, for whom is there bondage or liberation, it will be seen there for me. If one inquires, who am I, one will see there is no such thing as the I. Longchenpa again. 
Now the perfection of the ultimate nature, freedom from comings and goings, has been reached. Then where to go? Nowhere. And if it's realized that everything is divine, everything is, as the Tibetans say, the great perfection, then what really needs to be done anyway? I mean, you're going to improve upon God or what here? This is why Wang Po writes, all things have been free from bondage from the very beginning. So why attempt to purify what has never been defiled? What kind of all this work people are doing? All practices are like medicines for a disease. You have an infection, you take an antibiotic. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. You have high blood pressure, you take what? Salt. Well, salt. Okay. Now, 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 be careful here. Somebody, don't listen to that advice. That is wrong information. Whatever. You take the medicine for the specific condition, and when the condition's over, you stop taking the medicine. You don't go on taking antibiotics after the infection has been fixed. So, then... The last little question here is, how can you tell, then, if you had full awakening, full gnosis? How do you know? I'll give you one clue. If that doubt arises, <laughs> it ain't it. Positively, period. But, truly speaking, you are your own authority. No one can tell you. You are your own authority. There's a wonderful little Zen story about a Zen uh, seeker who... Uh, had Satori, Kensha, and he went to his master to be tested. And the master tested him and said, that's not Satori. You go back and practice more. And the monk went away and practiced a little more. And they came back a week later and said, you know, if this isn't Satori, you keep your Satori. I'll keep this. And I said, ah, that's it. <laughs> you are your own authority. And no one can tell you. The only reason in traditions... You know, masters give their seal of approval to a student is for the sake of, you know, other students who are going to look to this person as a teacher. And I think I'll end here with the advice Shankar gave. He said, how are you to know for certain that you are liberated from the bondage of ignorance and have realized the Atman, which is absolute existence, pure consciousness, and abiding bliss? The words of the scriptures, your own power of reasoning, and the teaching of your master should all help to convince you. But the only absolute proof is direct and immediate experience within your own soul. So, that's my little talk this morning. I hope it will be helpful. If there are any questions or comments, we can spend a little time. Yes? <clears throat> I just wanted to ask you, uh, just because I experienced this the other day, um, just... Um, how does Joel um, experience sadness or anger? How do you move through that? I don't try do you, to move through it. Or Say, I mean, you know, whatever, flow with it. Or I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm using the word I here. I mean, uh, but the the real secret is, is uh, there is no I that's happening to. But uh, yeah. so we don't, so we don't fall into awkward language. Mm -hmm. But how do you uh, experience? When you go to a wonderful, beautiful, sad movie, how do you experience that sadness? How do you move through it? How do I move through it? Um, do you even I want to I move be, through it? That's a good question. Do you want to move through it? Um, no, not, not for a while. You don't. You want to be with it. That's right. In fact, why did you pay the money to go see the movie in the first place? All your friends told, oh, it's such a beautiful movie. I cried. I went through a whole box of handkerchiefs. <laughs> oh, really? You went out and you paid money to go have that experience too. You're not in a hurry to move through it. That's my point about emotions. It's delusion that makes us think emotions are a source of suffering. Emotions aren't the source of suffering. It's some misperception about how we're experiencing them. I love, I love sadness, it's fine. Anger, anger's a fiery, powerful thing. I even like to kvetch. You know, I, some of you heard the story, we were in New York, and I was, I hadn't been in New York, I grew up there, and I hadn't been there in, you know, 20 years, and Jennifer and I are walking around, and I'm saying, oh my gosh, look at that, what happened to Little Italy? I mean, there are no Italian shops here, look at it's all Chinese restaurants. And she said, will you stop kvetching? And I said, I like the kvetch. What do you mean stop kvetching? That's the fun of going back and visiting where you're from. Nothing's the same. 
So that's a short answer. If you want, I did have another tape, actually. Oh, I'm building up so many tapes now, I can save myself a lot of <laughs> I think it's called, uh, What's in a uh, Gnostic's Head or something? What's Inside My Head. What's Inside My Head. Oh, you listened to it recently, yeah. Thanks. Yes, Weston. Um, if you're having some kind of Gnostic flash or experience, and, and the thought comes that you're, uh, you're doubting this, if you saw that, if you see that as God again, then you're still where you are. That's Zodja. You look oh. directly at the thought, and it's just a thought. It's just a thought. We can all try this right now, actually. See, this is wonderful. This space in this room, the space in this room, I want you to all think it's beautiful. Just generate that thought. It's beautiful. Now generate the thought, it's ugly. The thought comes and goes. It hasn't touched the space at all, has it? Hasn't affected the space in one iota. The space remains the space. We can think whatever we like about consciousness, about ultimate reality, about God. But it's like the space. It's like uh, in uh, Taoism and stuff, you know, the bird flies through the air and leaves no tracks. It's just phenomena manifesting. And every phenomenon that manifests is, in fact, from a point of view of a student, it's a teacher. Because it all comes out of that groundless ground and it all goes back into that groundless ground. So if you just watch it, you, if you see where it comes from, where it's going, that just takes your attention right there. That's why the abyss opens up between every transformation of phenomena. When you're awake, it's a celebration. It's not a teaching anymore. It's just music. It's just a celebration of what God can do. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Endless. Ibn Arabi says, everything is a divine self-disclosure, the self-disclosure of God. A self-disclosure, very interesting, not a creation, God up here created. A self-disclosure, like music, is a self-disclosure of what's in your soul. And it is endless because God never repeats himself. And you see, things may seem it's the same dreary old Oregon weather, but every day is a little different. <laughs> it's never exactly repeated. Everything is new. Everything is fresh. Just look directly at it. That's the key. Yeah. I have a question about the divine guidance. Yes. Um, and how you said it can be very difficult to learn to trust it. And you said it, that if your mind is telling you, you don't need it to tell you what you want. So there's that question of want and need. And I'm wondering... Um, you know, I, for example, personally, I may want a car, but I know that I don't need one. And so even if my mind generates some thought about, oh, that's a nice car, I'd like that, the, the next thought after that is, well, I don't really need it, so it doesn't matter, and then it, that just passes. So I, I have trouble between this need and want. That, but you're still describing what Zorba called Grocer's mind. Weighing. Well, should I get that car? Oh, I really don't need it. <laughs> that's still, and that's fine. That's what the you know, that's what the uh, uh, thinking mind is hired to do. That's supposed to weigh these things out and sort them out at that level and all that. What I meant was not like whether you need it, like you need a car or not, but the guidance tells you what you need to do on a spiritual path. You see what I mean? So you may uh, uh, be considering going to a retreat. And maybe you're a little afraid of going first retreat, 10-day retreat, you know. And then maybe you have a dream. And you wake up and you know from the dream, I don't know, the Buddha appears to you and says, go on that retreat. <laughs> <laughs> it could be that straightforward. And you wake up with this feeling, you know you should be going. It's not something you necessarily want to do. So that's what I'm talking about. It comes from a deeper level. It's a, and that's, that's a, a vivid, strong thing. But it may be just something that grows in you gradually. I don't know, I need to go to India. Mm -hmm. I never felt the need to go to India, but people do. And it, it just nags at you, and you don't listen to it, but it keeps nagging at you, you know. That's what I'm talking about. It's subtle, and it's hard to uh, be precise about it. And again, you have to be your own authority, and people do get confused. What is, 
ego mind projecting what it wants and calling it spiritual guidance. And what is true spiritual guidance? So it's something you have to feel your way through. But I think it's true in most cases anyway. You have to open yourself to it. And that means stop paying attention to the thinking mind for a while. Not look to the thinking mind to give you <coughs> answers to what you should do with your life. Because it can't. That once you know what you're going to do with your life, the thinking mind is wonderful. Here's how you should do it, but it can't tell you what to do. And if we're looking for it to tell us what to do, it will try. You know, it, it's trying to serve us. Oh, oh well, I'll, uh, yeah, you want me to tell you? Well, sure, I'll tell you. This is what you should do. Da, 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 da. But it's just not a quit. So this, the trick is to let go of that, to open ourselves, because... Uh, we can't force this guidance to come. We can only open ourselves to it. And then it comes. And it comes in the different forms for different people. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Yes, Miriam. Well, it's all very well that you know you're enlightened. <laughs> How do we know you're enlightened? <laughs> See, I'm speaking from myself. Yes. Myself, um, having, you know, this isn't really an issue. A lot of people, I mean, I, it's been an issue in my life having followed two spiritual teachers. And maybe it really doesn't matter, from my point of view, whether you're enlightened or not. But it has something to do with trust, you know, like, how can I trust you? And, um, and maybe that doesn't even matter either, whether I trust you, know, whether you're trustable, whether you're trusting, whether I should trust you. I don't know, it's sort of, it's sort of confusing. Well, uh, we're speaking at different levels here, but first I mean, of all... everything you say sounds... Right. <laughs> but, you know, but then I read other things from other spiritual teachers, and I wonder, and then there's this book called Halfway Up the Mountain about spiritual teachers who supposedly think they're enlightened and they're not, and how, who am I to say whether they're not enlightened? As a more practical question, I think it's a very valuable question. Uh, if you're trying to weigh what a teacher tells you or something like that, yes, you want to make those kinds of relative judgments. So this is why the center... We have a library here full of books by the great mystics of the great traditions, and I always am quoting from them. And so you can do your own exploration. You can go read these mystics, and they have survived through time. Presumably the phony ones have been sifted out, and the, and the real ones have survived, you know. And different generations over and over have found their teachings valuable. So there's a certain, you know, practical uh, testing that's going on. So that's trustworthy. If my words... Uh, conform with what they're saying, not just the exact wording, but the, what I'm teaching, uh, that gives you some idea that uh, maybe he's, you know, right on. But the other most important thing uh, really is to look at my life. Is my life uh, appearing to you to have as its purpose uh, a self-aggrandizement or not? And, and look in specifically in detail, you know, how I treat people and all that. But don't look at an image of what you think a spiritual teacher should be. Because if you have an image that a spiritual teacher should never drink any beer, you've got no place being here. <laughs> or smoke cigarettes or whatever. And, and that could be important to you. Maybe you want a teacher who is a vegetarian, doesn't drink beer, cigarettes. Maybe that's what attracts your attention. That's fine. You know, that's great. But it has nothing ultimately to, to do with being enlightened. But it can be very important to somebody on a spiritual path. Hang out with a teacher for a while. I mean, just see how they treat people. That's the way. This is what I would do. And how are they treating other people, you know? Uh, where's the money going? <laughs> what kind of car are they driving? I mean, they, you know, That's who true. are they stripping, as we used to say in Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me that sometimes people hang out with a teacher for a long time, 20 years maybe, and then discover maybe this was not somebody they want to hang out with. But meanwhile, they've spent 20 years of their lives doing this. Well, ultimately, nothing's wasted. That doesn't right. mean I recommend and say, look, so who cares if they're a good teacher or not? You stay with them, you know, because, uh, you know, you can, you can learn from your enemies. Mm -hmm. So you can certainly learn from a false teacher in that sense. The trouble is there isn't wisdom on both sides. But, you know, life is uncertain. Yes. The only certainty is uncertainty. That's the teacher. And we have to decide and make judgments, relative judgments, uh, based on that uncertainty. And that is the courage we need, uh, not only in a spiritual path, but in life. Do you know what I mean? to jump in and to live it. We do the best we can. That's all anybody can ask. Yeah. You said that uh, practices are stage-specific and that um, often at the stage of having a Gnostic flash, 
the, the thing you would recommend is to uh, practice something like Dzogchen as opposed to trying to integrate that into your regular right. life, which would be applying an earlier practice to that. I wonder what you have to say about the reverse, which would be applying the practice of Dzogchen at an earlier stage before someone's had a Gnostic flash and the wisdom or, or maybe the problems associated with teachers giving those teachings kind of indiscriminately to people who may not be at that stage. Yeah, I, I can't speak too much from experience because I try not to do that. But I do know from an attitude point of view, that's what leads to this attitude. Oh, you really don't have to do any practice. You just have to be still and, and everything's okay and just relax and whatever arises is fine. And people uh, who have no spiritual experience or just you know very preliminary insights, they, they don't know what that means. Their minds are interpreting it from the point of view of delusion. So you sit there and you relax and you hang out and uh, that's fine for uh, a while. And it, you know, Americans hate work, so it's a shortcut, it seems like, and it appeals to people. And, you know, in that sense, it's damaging because you could be doing good practice, a concentration practice or a pasana practice or something, you know. So uh, now there are aspects of the Dzogchen practice that I think are valuable, short of a Gnostic flash. Uh, the whole business of emotion, for instance, I do teach that, but not in the very beginning. That's a later stage practice. And how to look at emotion and try to be able to experience emotion as just energy and to see how the mind labels it. Because uh, if nothing else, at least it can take you away your fear of emotion and so alleviate suffering. And also you might start to get a sense of how emotion can be used wisely. All emotions, even so-called negative emotions. So it starts to break that down. But I don't expect anybody to do that practice as a practice of direct pointing to enlightenment. But I do think to present Dzogchen as, to a beginner, as this is the way to go, and it is damaging. It leads to that other error I talked about in the beginning. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. At last! <laughs> this teacher always says you can't communicate this in words, goes on and on. <laughs> You're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library until we see you again. Peace to you all.